Hi, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and I love being here uh, to study the Word of God with all of you. So thank you for being here today. Now, there is um, an Academy Award-winning movie from the late 1960s. I saw recently with Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn. It's called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And it is uh, the story about expectations that family has of their daughter's fiancé before they meet him. If you know the story, you know that when they actually meet him, he's dramatically different from what they expected. And, of course, it makes a great movie. Um, and this movie always reminds me that it's true, isn't it? We have expectations of people before we've ever even laid eyes on them. And it also reminds me that we do that same thing with God as well. We oftentimes have expectations of God before we even meet him. Before I trusted Christ as my Savior years ago, I had an image of God in my mind. Uh, it was distant. It was scary, he was unapproachable, and he was liable to zap me at any minute if I crossed some invisible line. That's how I thought about God before I actually met him. Fortunately, my salvation experience erased some of those crazy pictures that I had of God. But you know, I had nothing to replace them with until I began to study the scriptures and discover who God really is. And that's God's plan for all of us, that we would know who he really is, not some expectation that somebody else along the way has given us, that um, we would understand the truth about our God. And as we look at God's instructions to Israel today, as we continue our journey... Uh, through numbers, we're going to get a great picture of who God really is because he's going to reveal his holiness to Israel. Now, holiness is one of those words that I think everybody really struggles with uh, to define at some point in time. But there is a concise definition of holiness. I put it on your outline there. Holiness is the condition of someone or something that is set apart, that is sacred, that is consecrated, Morally pure, holy, blameless. And you know, as God's people, holiness, uh, unfortunately, is often a concept that is difficult for us to really understand it, to get a grasp of and to put our minds around. Because apart from the blood of Jesus and apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are not holy. We are not holy at all. In fact, we are sinners simply saved by God's grace. But holiness is God's nature. Holiness is God's nature. It is the foundational attribute of God. Holiness is his essence. Holiness is his essence. Um, in fact, holiness is the only attribute of God that when it's mentioned in the scriptures, it's elevated and it's emphasized by being repeated three times. Look at your verse sheet with me. Isaiah 6, 3 on your verse sheet. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And Revelation 4, 8 says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You know, God is also love. He's also mercy. He's also grace, justice, so many other attributes we could talk about this morning. But we don't see the scriptures emphasizing those by saying, God is love, love, love. We don't see the scriptures saying, God is mercy, mercy, mercy. And that's because holiness is not just an attribute. Holiness is a description of his deity. And it needs to remind us that everything about him emanates from this holiness that is completely who God is. His love is a holy love. His mercy is a holy mercy. His justice, a holy mercy, a holy justice. And his spirit, a holy spirit. So we can see why, if that is who God is, he would want the nation of Israel, his people, to understand his holiness. It's simply who he is. And they can't know God without knowing his holiness. Um, In his book, Knowledge of the Holy, which is a great read if you have some time, A.W. Tozer calls God the quintessence of moral excellence, infinitely pure in righteousness. And what Tozer is saying when he says those big words is that um, in all the universe, God alone is completely, fully holy. Look at Exodus 1511 on your verse sheet. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And 1 Samuel 2, 2 says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Only God is fully and completely holy. And because Israel's God is holy... Israel has a responsibility to grow in holiness as well as God lives in their midst. Look at Leviticus 11.45. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So we're going to begin to look in Numbers chapter 4 together and see how God grows Israel in holiness Because that is who God is. Look at Numbers uh, chapter 4 verse 1 with me. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi by their clans and their father's houses from 30 years old up to 50 years old. All who can come on duty to do the work in the tent of the meeting. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of the meeting, the most holy things. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it, and then they shall put on it a covering of goatskins and spread on top of that a cloth of blue and shall put in its poles. And over the table of bread of the presence, they shall spread a cloth of blue and put on it the plates, the dishes for incense, the bowls, the flagons for the drink offering, the regular showbread also shall be on it. And then they shall spread a cloth of scarlet and cover the same with a covering of goatskin and shall put in its poles. 
And then they shall take a cloth of blue and cover the lampstand for the light with its lamps, its tongs, its trays, all the vessels for the oil with which it is supplied. And we, of course, could read through the rest of the chapter and see how they prepare the other furnishings as well. Last week, when Deb was here with us, um, she told us that the Levites were exempted from the first census because the first census included those men that were going to serve in the army and defend Israel. The Levites instead are going to be responsible for the tabernacle and all of its furnishings or the tent of the meeting. So here goes God. He gives instructions to Moses for another census because he wants to count the Levites, those who are from the age of 30 to 50 years old because those are the ones that will actually serve in the tabernacle. And there were around 8,500 men when they finally counted them all up that were between the ages of 30 and 50. Now God starts here with the clan of Kohath. Now Levi had three sons. It was Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Um, and these are the clans of his three sons. Now he starts with Kohath here, not because he's the oldest, but because the sons of Kohath have been given the most serious responsibility for the holy articles in the tabernacle. And uh, I believe we have a map to put up here on the screen for you. You've got this map also in your notebook if you want to look at it in more detail later. But the tabernacle, of course, was where God's presence resided inside the Holy of Holy, above the Ark of the Testimony and the Mercy Seat. And the furnishings of the tabernacle that God calls the most holy furnishings here are listed inside the um, enclosure there that is the most holy place. I think they're numbered one through six on your map in your notebook. And they are the Ark of the Covenant, the Table of Showbread, the Altar of Incense, the Lampstand, and the Bronze Altar, which is actually outside the most holy place. Now, these furnishings have no ability to be holy, do they? They're inanimate objects. They don't possess character traits. They don't have character attributes. There is no moral purity in any of our uh, furnishings, are there? Uh, but because they have been dedicated and set apart strictly to the service of a holy God, they are considered holy. Look at Exodus 49 on your verse sheet. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. Anything that has to do with a holy God uh, cannot defile him and it must be anointed and consecrated first. So the sons of Kohath have been given this enormous job transporting through the desert these holy things of a holy God um, but there's a problem. They can't touch them uh, to transport them. They can't actually put their hands on them because they haven't been consecrated as the priests have. So we read here that in, um, the only people that can actually come in contact, direct contact with these furnishings, are Aaron and his sons who have been consecrated and set apart as God's priests. And so what they do is they go actually go in first. They cover and wrap carefully all of these holy furnishings. The first thing that they do, which I thought was interesting, is they take down the veil that separates the Ark of the Testimony from the rest of the furnishings. And 
really, without even looking at it, they take it down from the side on the other side of it and manage to cover the Ark of the Covenant without exposing themselves to it. And then they carefully wrap that Ark of the Covenant in that beautiful veil. Then they put a goatskin covering on top of it, and that provides a great protection as they travel through the wilderness for that beautiful veil and the Ark of the Testimony. And then it's finally covered with a blue cloth. Now, the last duty that they did was incredibly important because they had to put the carrying poles through the rings um, And this process was repeated for every single piece of furnishing that was in the Holy of Holies. They would all be carefully wrapped and covered by the priests. And then the poles were put in place by Aaron and his sons before the sons of Kohath were allowed to enter and do their job. Now, I don't know whether any of you have had any experience with moving. But if you have, you know that when you move, most of the time it starts out pretty organized, doesn't it? You have a plan, you go get your boxes, you label everything. One of my daughter-in-laws color-coded the labels on the boxes with the rooms and, you know, everything was, well, but you also know that as it goes along and you get closer and closer and closer, everything becomes chaos, doesn't it? And you eventually end up putting your grandmother's heirloom china in the same box with your husband's hunting boots and bowling ball. I mean, you're just, you're just like, I don't care. Put it in the box. Get it on the truck. But this move, this move is too important. And they're going to make this move over and over and over again. And the stakes are higher here than simply your grandmother's heirloom china. The stakes here involve the lives of these sons of Kohath. They must obey God's instruction. Every single time they go through this, they can't say, you know, we did it well last time, but this time we're tired, we're busy, we're going to cut a few corners. Because if they touch these holy furnishings or even look at them, there's a price to pay. Drop your eyes down to verse 15 with me. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these. But they must not touch the holy things lest they die. And look down at verse 17. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites. But deal thus with them, that they may live and not die, when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint each of them to his task and burden. But they shall not go in and look on the holy things, even for a moment or lest they die. If they did not obey God's exact directions, no matter how tired or hurried or rushed they were, um, people would die. It was a serious issue to obey God's word. You know, King David, centuries later, learned this lesson the hard way when he was in a hurry to move the Ark of the Covenant. Um, He simply put it in a wagon. And look what happens. Read 2 Samuel 6 right here. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the Ark of the Covenant. 
Our lesson is that the holy things of God, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what our human reasoning is, the holy things of God can never be defiled by unholy hands or there will be consequences. Now the clans of the um, other two sons of Levi, the Gershon and the Merari, also have responsibilities for packing and moving the tabernacle. They're given different instructions. The Gershon are responsible for all the curtains and coverings that actually come uh, form the exterior structure of the tabernacle. Um, look at your picture later and you will see that. The curtains of the perimeter are included for the Gershon, the interior screens, the core, the cords and the big goat hair covering that covered the holy of holies that was their responsibility and they would go in themselves physically take these down carefully pack them up and they had to be moved in wagons and next week in chapter 7 we see how God provides those wagons the Merari, the sons of the Merari, were given the responsibility to transport the solid pieces of the structure of the tabernacle and everything that goes with the bases and the pillars and the bars that would hang all of the curtains around um, and they're going to need wagons as well and they too were allowed to go in and actually touch these things and load them in wagons. Now these are part of God's holy dwelling but touching them wasn't prohibited. It was, however, carefully directed and organized uh, by one of the priests, Aaron's son, Ithamar. So it wasn't like they were just rolling them up and tossing them in a wagon. They had careful directions to guard these as well. And chapter 4 closes with that point. Look at verse 49 with me in chapter 4. It says, according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses, they were listed, each one with his task of serving or caring. They were listed by him as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, those of you that studied the tabernacle with us last fall, you remember the great detail that God gave uh, when the tabernacle was built and first constructed. Now that it's been constructed and erected, God's instructions for moving it are just as detailed and carefully followed. Everyone had their job and everyone stuck to their job and obeyed God under the direction of the priest. Now, as I was thinking about how they moved this and how everyone had a job, there were I think I said over 8,000 men that were responsible at one time or another for moving the tabernacle. It must have been exciting every time they moved because these Levites would uh, go in and erect the tabernacle as the camp was all coming in to wherever God wanted them to be. The first thing that would happen is the Kohathites would carry in the holy furnishings and set that in place. And then the next thing would be the Moare would set up the physical structure the bases and the um, uh, heavy things that had to be the posts and the footings and the boards. And then the Gershon would finally come in and hang all of those exterior curtains. And the last thing that would happen is the priests would unpack the holy furnishings. And then God's presence would descend in the midst of their camp. It had to be an incredible sight. And how comforting every single time they made that move that it went exactly as God had directed it. Now, this was a holy dwelling for a holy God, and we don't have a tabernacle to obediently care for today, do we? 
but we do have a holy dwelling that we must care for um, every single day as well. Look at 1 Corinthians 3 on your verse sheet. This is Paul talking to the church at Corinth. And the tipple that he's talking about here is the local individual church. And he says to the church at Corinth, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This is the local church that Paul is admonishing to remember that they are God's local dwelling, holy dwelling place as well. Just as his tabernacle was obediently cared for and carefully, carefully and patiently moved because they followed his instructions, we have to be obedient and careful with our churches today as well because this is where God's holy dwelling is today. Our individual churches, lady, Christ Chapel is set apart by the Lord. It's set apart by him so that we can worship him and serve him. And this is a holy place. It's a holy place. Every time we're together as the body of Christ, God's Holy Spirit is here with us. He's here with us this morning. He's here with us every Sunday morning. So when we think about all these carefully orchestrated instructions that God gave Moses for moving the tabernacle, we should be reminded he's given us throughout the New Testament careful instructions for guarding and caring for his local church, because that's his holy dwelling. You know, throughout the New Testament, we see and we need to pay attention to the instructions that he gives for pastors and elders and deacons. Titus chapter 2 has a great and special instruction for a women's ministry, which is one of the reasons we're all here together today. We also see him instructing us as a church in unity because he dwells in unity with us. We see him instructing us in worship in the New Testament. God has a plan for his holy dwelling, his local church today. And we need to be careful that we don't ignore the fact that God dwells in our churches today. We need to be careful that we don't hijack the local church for our own agenda or become complacent about our local churches um, because he gives us a warning here in 1 Corinthians 3. I don't know whether you noticed it. Look back on that verse again. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, meaning the local church, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. God's temple is holy. His holy dwelling, um, attacking the local church, his holy dwelling, will come at a high price, just like the sons of Kohath. God will deal harshly with anyone who attempts to destroy his holy dwelling, the church today. And I don't know about you, but that encourages me because our culture around us is attacking the local church every single day. So I'm encouraged when I read that God himself is going to guard his holy dwelling. So just like um, the Levites, growing in holiness for us means we should protect and serve our local church, in obedience to a holy God. Okay, let's read some in chapter 5 together. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is 
unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp. As the Lord said to Moses, so the people of uh, Israel did. You know, the primary means of protecting people from spreading disease 3,500 years ago was to isolate them. Sanitary conditions and modern medicine would not exist for centuries. But beyond this practical reason for isolating uh, from illness and disease uh, was God's holiness to consider. There is God's holiness here because anything that made God's people unclean according to God's laws could not be in the camp where he dwelled and walked among his people. The holiness of God and anything that would defile his holiness could never exist together and had to be separated. Now, we have to remember this morning that the nation of Israel was in the baby stages of their journey with God. They have just begun this big walk with God. And so he's living among them now as he takes them from Sinai to Cana on this journey. And as he lives among them, what he's doing here is training them to recognize clean and unclean, sin and separate themselves from sin. And he did that by giving them a way of life where anything clean in their lives was automatically separated from anything that was considered unclean. And this concept of clean and unclean actually permeates uh, the entire lives of the Jewish people. If you take a minute and read through Leviticus, you'll find that out. It involved uh, clean and unclean actually involved what they wore, what they ate, how they interacted in public and in their homes. You know, there were certain discharges and contact with uh, dead bodies made people unclean, and they were put outside the camp until they went through a process of purification, ritual cleansing that generally took seven days. This does protect them from disease, from physically contaminating the rest of the camp, But it also sets an example for the nation of Israel about the meaning of holiness and what it means to be set apart. What it means to be set apart. God's people were um, to be clean, not only on the outside, but God's people were to discover on their journey that they needed to be clean on the inside as well. God's desire was that their obedience to his laws of clean and unclean would lead them to be a people that was set apart not only from just physical decay, which were represented by the discharges and diseases and dead bodies, but he hoped that they would get his point, that they needed to be set apart from the spiritual filth of the world around them as they journeyed toward the promised land. Look at 2 Corinthians 7.1 on your verse sheet. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. God's laws of clean and unclean would grow his people in holiness, not just on the outside, but on the inside as well. Now, 
clean bodies were important um, to a holy God. But let's keep reading and read what else is important to him. Look at verse uh, 5 in chapter 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall uh, confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. Okay, so clean bodies are important to a holy God, but clean hearts and clean relationship are also necessary for the nation of Israel to grow in holiness. You know, Israel is soon going to be facing a huge amount of enemies and conflicts as they journey towards the promised land and then into the promised land and have to defeat the people that are living there. But if they have conflicts and enemies in their own nation, among their own people, in their own families, in their own tribes, tribe upon tribe or clan upon clan, that's not going to allow them to fight and win as a unified people. Um, and unrepentant sin and their personal relationships will not only damage their unity as a people and their ability to fight outsiders, it's going to damage their relationship with a holy God who protects them and who is taking them to the promised land. Look at Psalm 51.4 with me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. All sin damages our relationships with God. And a great lesson in holiness here in the lives of God's people is that um, holiness doesn't just look like that quick confession and a insincere I'm sorry. For those of us that have children, I know you've all done this, where you look at your um, kids and you say, Okay, you need to apologize to your sister for hitting her with that truck. And what do you get out of that? You get the rolled eyes and you get this kind of sorry. You know, that is not holiness and repentance of sin in our relationship. Um, holiness demands that we recognize that sin causes significant pain in the lives of others and in our relationships. And it requires that we make restitution for that pain in order to truly redeem the relationship. Now that restitution in our lives may look like a sincere apology uh, and maybe some conversation about what happened. In the lives of the nation of Israel, it looked like an offering here that was made. We have to make restitution in order to redeem relationships. That's what holiness looks like to a holy God because a holy God knows that sin exacts a price in everyone's life. Everyone's life. So let's keep reading. Let's look at um, verse 11 in chapter 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and is, she is undetected though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife though she has 
has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. So faithfulness is God's holy standard for marriage. Faithfulness is God's holy standard of marriage. God created marriage. God recognizes that faithfulness in marriage is the foundation of a holy nation and the foundation of that nation's people. So this difficult, crazy passage here uh, is about adultery. It's about adultery, which not only destroys families, it also affects the whole nation because it causes disputes. If you have adultery between tribes and clans and men and women and children involved, it causes disputes with inheritance and with land in the nation of Israel here. Um, a holy God who is living in the midst of his people is never going to tolerate unholy practices which defile his people, which destroy marriages, which destroy families, and eventually would destroy the whole nation of Israel. So for Israel, adultery was a serious offense. Um, it was punishable by death in both parties. God's holy standard for marriage is always faithfulness. Look at Leviticus 20.10 on your verse sheet. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. This is a serious offense for the nation of Israel. So these verses here, the rest of chapter 5, describe this uh, unique situation where a jealous husband is accusing his wife of adultery. And apparently there were no witnesses to um, that crime of adultery. If there had been, both she and the person she committed adultery with would have been taken outside the camp and stoned on the um, uh, basis of two witnesses to their crime. Um, so because there are no witnesses, it's just something he's accusing her. His only recourse is to take her to the priest and make his accusation public. Now, this is a really interesting test provided here uh, by the Lord because what it effectively does is protect women. It protects women from husbands who are overly possessive, who are paranoid because they think they have the most beautiful wife in the camp and every man is after her, or maybe even from husbands that are mean and abusive. It's interesting to me in the times that I've... Um, uh, been with women who have abusive husbands, one of the threads throughout all the abuse is always, you're unfaithful, you're having an affair. So when I read this, I thought, this is interesting. This is a common thing with abusive husbands, that they accuse their wives of adultery. So um, anyway, this prote effectively protects women from having husbands that constantly, publicly, or privately accuse them of unholy behavior. Now, the rest of chapter 5 that we're not going to read describes the ritual where a woman is presented to the Lord. She's uh, presented to the priest, given a drink uh, called the water of, of bitterness that would betray her if... Um, she had committed adultery. It would make her ill and it would prevent her from ever having children. If she's innocent, of course, then drinking this drink that the priest gives her has no effect on her health when she drinks it. Um, so God provides an opportunity here for women to be completely exonerated and protected from hurtful accusations made by jealous husbands. 
Women who are honoring their marriage vows had no fear of being presented to the priest, did they? I imagine they even welcomed it. I can see them saying to the guy that keeps saying to them, you're having an affair with the guy down in tent number 12. Um, you know, I can see her saying, let's go to the priest. Let's just make this public and see how you feel about that. Because this would be the test that ended the talk and the abuse and the suspicion uh, which were brought about by gossip and false accusations. God's test protects women. And it also reminds his people over and over again publicly that his standard for marriage is faithfulness. Now, God's plan to live among his people never meant that he was going to become more like them, did it? What it always was meant to do was to teach and train his people to grow in holiness, um, to be set apart from sin and evil. And here in chapter 5, we see that progression, don't we? As he's teaching them and training this about clean and unclean, holy and unholy behavior. What he does first is use the example of diseased and dead bodies, doesn't he? Um, They have to be separated from the community to protect them. And then he deals with diseased and dead hearts um, that will infect relationships and ruin the families and the nation eventually. Our lesson as we look here at uh, his instructions for Israel is that growing in holiness for us also means understanding the difference between clean and unclean, healthy and unhealthy in all of our lives, but certainly in our relationships, does it? Growing in holiness looks like um, avoiding diseased and dead relationships that will lead us down a difficult path. And instead, we need to use our time and our energy not being involved in unhealthy relationships. We need to use our time and our energy to redeem relationships that have been damaged by sin. And all of us have those relationships in our life, don't we? Okay, let's start on chapter 6. Let's read verse 1 through 5 in chapter 6. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds of the skins. And all the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed from which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow long. Now, the entire tribe of the Levites were actually set apart by God to serve him. But others in Israel from the rest of the tribes could voluntarily set themselves apart to um, serve God through what's called a Nazarite, Nazarite vow here. Now, a Nazarite vow could be taken by either a man or a woman, um, and everyone who chose to enter it did so for a time that they had chosen. They entered a period of separation, and they did that in order to glorify God and to completely obey his word. It was done. A Nazarite vow was done with a desire to yield to God completely for a period of time. 
Yield to God completely for a period of time. Now, I read a lot of things about why people entered into Nazarite vows. They were mostly for personal reasons, just like we sit down for a time of separation and prayer. People apparently did it for a time of thanksgiving if they were grateful um, to God. for something that had happened in their life, if they needed godly wisdom, if they were pursuing um, decisions. Uh, And even sometimes I read that they did it if they were recovering from an illness. They would take a Nazarite vow. Now, this vow was taken, as I said, from a specific time frame. It had a beginning and an end. And it included uh, not only yielding to God, but certainly uh, restricting certain things in your life, which we've already read. It was fermented drink, and it was wine, and it was products from the grapevine. Um, They were not allowed to cut their hair, and they also did not um, have any contact with dead bodies. Uh, So when the vow was completed, there was a sacrifice that was taken to uh, the priest and offered as a gift to the Lord. And then everyone would know that that vow was completed because they would shave their head at the entrance to the tabernacle, and the hair would be given to the priest and placed on the altar Uh, to be burned, and that completed the time of the vow and of being set apart to God. Now, the scriptures do tell us that there were three people that uh, had a Nazareth vow in their lives for life, three people mentioned in scripture. One of them was Samuel, the prophet and judge that anointed King David, uh, king of Israel. Another one was Samson, who was one of Israel's judges, and the third one was John the Baptist, who was actually declared a Nazarite before he was born. So for the Israelites to live with a holy God in their midst... A Nazarite vow was an opportunity not to get something from God, but to give something back to God, to give something to him, to give them their devotion, their obedience, their worship by focusing for a time not on the things of the world around them, but by focusing strictly on their holy God. A Nazarite vow was a time, an opportunity to walk for a time with in holiness with their God. Now, as the New Testament church, we haven't been given instructions to take Nazarite vows, have we? But we are given direction and encouragement to set ourselves apart from the world and to walk with our holy God. Look at Romans 12, 1 and 2 on your verse sheet. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, our calling as New Testament believers in Jesus' church is not about our hair or about drinking wine or taking sacrifices to the priest. Our calling as New Testament believers is to simply set ourselves apart from the world, transforming our minds, transforming our minds by the truth of his word and living our lives in a way that worships and honors the holiness of God. Just as the angels called out three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, we have an opportunity with our lives to live our lives as sacrifices and offerings um, for him. And when we do that, guess what our lives say to the world around us? 
It sings out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Growing in holiness for us means yielding our lives to God every day in obedience. That should be the prayer that we have every morning when we wake up. Lord, let me yield my life to you today that the world might see that you are a holy God. We should be transformed by his holiness rather than conformed to the world and the culture around us. Okay, let's finish up. Let's look at verse uh, 22 in the end of chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. I think actually this blessing is the perfect way to end this section of numbers. I wish we had uh, another two hours to talk about this blessing. But this is a benediction and a blessing that God gives to uh, Aaron and the priests to pronounce over his people over and over and over again as they journey towards the promised land. And it's beautiful, isn't it? And it's gracious. And it's filled with the truth These are God's people because only God's people will have his face on them constantly. Only God's people will um, have uh, the peace of God. Only God's people will have his presence focused on them every single minute of their journey. Um, This blessing reminds us that God lives with them. He will care for them. He has set them apart from all the nations of the earth to learn what it means to live a holy life. Learn what it means to live a holy life, a life dedicated to him apart from sin and evil. And the final thing he does here to set them apart as a holy nation is put his name on them. Having God's name is probably one of the greatest ways that the rest of the world knows Israel is different. And through this nation that God blesses and walks towards holiness will come a blessing to the entire world that will eventually affect all of our holiness, won't it? The Lord Jesus Christ, which allows us to step into the presence of a holy God. Our final lesson as we end this section in Numbers is that growing in holiness as God's people blesses us, doesn't it? When we um, desire to grow Uh, in holiness it blesses us just like this blessing blessed the nation of Israel because guess what God's holiness in our lives does it lets us love what God loves it teaches us to hate what God hates and we live by the truth of his word look at first Peter 1 14 on your verse sheet as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance But as he called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Pray with me. Father, we we take this message out of here today, Lord, because um, we are your people, and you are a holy God. And Father, I pray that each one of us would um, wake up every morning, and uh, the first thought in our head would be, we want to yield to a holy God, yield our entire lives to you. Thank you for these women. They love you. They love each other. They love the truth of your word, and they love our Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray this in his name.
Amen.